Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up? How we doing? Doing good. Today, we embark upon what Rachel Held Evans calls the wisdom stories. Mm. Any idea? Oh, well, this is actually a good question. Okay. Clayton, do you know what the wisdom literature books are? Oh, gosh. I used to know. Um, so it's... I want to say it starts with Job. So Job is in the wisdom literature. Okay. Can I look at the books of the Bible? Mm-hmm. No, you okay. should know this. Why should I just know this? So Job, Psalms, yep. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Yep. 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 I know I'm missing one. That's literally all you're Oh, missing. that's it? You're you're well, you're only missing one. I I don't I can't remember what the last one is. Song of Solomon. Song, or Song of, of Solomon. Songs. Yeah. Whichever, yeah, however you want to say it. Yeah. Um that's all the wisdom literature. Um And actually, the one that she begins picking on is Job. Interesting. Um, And she makes a really good point that I had thought about in other contexts, but had not directly thought about in the conversation that she is having. Um, Tell me the story of Job, Clayton. (laughs) Uh, In a nutshell... Um, this dude named Job, named Job, spelled like job. Yeah. Spelled <laughs> like job named Job. Um, really righteous before God called blameless, called blameless, blameless and upright, righteous. Yep. Um, just whatever. Um, good dude. He's a good dude. Um, and then Depending on how you want to interpret this, whether it's Satan as we know him or the Satan, the the adversary. adversary accuser, this person in the court of God that is just playing devil's advocate. Right? There, there's a meeting of the angels. There's a meeting of people, like important of heavenly beings, beings. Of yeah. celestial beings, and the Satan accuses Job of only being righteous. Because um, God blesses him. Because God blesses him. Well, and actually, you're going to keep telling the story. Mm-hmm. I want to interject here. Mm-hmm. Um, God's the one that initiates the conversation. You're right. He Ooh, says I to the Satan, right. have you considered my servant have Job? Have you considered Job? You're right. So God actually becomes the instigator or initiator of the quote-unquote duel. It's funny. I was having this conversation with our parents last night about job yes because they're reading job right now they're reading job yeah i'm reading are you doing the reading bible along with them i'm doing a different one oh i'm I'm doing doing the one that the the bible project's doing right now um i'm doing it with them um anyways um so yeah and then god's like okay well have adam essentially (laughs) like prove to me that he's only righteous because i bless him and he gives him one category like one caveat 
Oh, you can do anything it. you want. No, you can't touch him. You, oh, you can't touch. You cannot lay a hand right. on him. Exactly. Um, and so what does the Satan do? Literally just kills everyone except his wife. And, and, and takes all of his animals. Every, like all of his wealth. Oh, he was, yeah, he was a really wealthy man. Super too, wealthy. And took all of his wealth, all of his family except his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his wife starts yelling at him. And why don't you just curse why God? Why don't you just curse God and die? Yep, right. Yep. Um, and then he's like, No, you're he says some things that Well, like, and in the middle there's an interjection, you get back to the throne room scene, you go back to oh, the court. Yeah. And I was trying to you're we're going in detail. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes back and then he says, Now you can do anything except take his life. Right. So that's when Job gets all the boils on him, mm-hmm. body and sores and go ahead. Anyways, now he's physically suffering. Um, and then his friends come in. His friends, friends quote yeah. unquote yeah, friends. Quote unquote friends. Uh, there's four of them. Uh-huh. Do you remember I, their names? I don't remember their names. Uh, Elphazat, Elphiaz. I can't remember exactly how you say them. Uh, Elf, Elphat. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those are the, okay. Those are the three friend names. I thought there was four. No, there's three. Two other friends show up later. Okay, that's but, where. But they yes. don't. I don't remember them getting names. Okay. Well, these first. Or no, one other friend show. You're right. It's one other friend. Yeah. He shows up later, and he doesn't have a name. Right. Um. The first three friends are trying to say that Job has done something to. He sinned in some way, and God is punishing him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Job's like, "Nah, bro. <laughs> like, I've been good. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what y'all are talking about. Um, and so there's this really long, like, philosophical d- debate between Job and his th- these three friends. Yeah, it goes for like thirty chapters. And it, yeah, it's a long. It's ridiculous. Um, and honestly, it's super interesting. Then you have this. They, they literally start making up yeah. possible scenarios of the things that he would have had to do in order for it to merit the type of curse that's right. been placed upon him. Um, it takes a long time to get through this conversation. But then there's the fourth friend who more or less, I, I'm, I'm kind of, my knowledge here starts kind of fading. Mm-hmm. But the fourth friend is taking a different perspective than the other three. Yep. Um, it's an ambiguous perspective. Yeah. It, it's basically one that says, hey, maybe you shouldn't look at this as black and white. Right. He literally doesn't offer a perspective. He's just like the eternal poser of questions. Mm. It's just like, he's just kind of there tickling in the background. Like, hey, well, mm. maybe you shouldn't be so dogmatic about that. Maybe you shouldn't think in that way. Mm. Maybe, Maybe you should think about this mm-hmm. he just he just kind of like he's the dude that if there's like if there's like a massive brawl or mosh pit happening in front of you he's the dude that stands on the outside and just like occasionally runs in with like a quick hitter <laughs> yeah that's the that's the fourth friend um i like that analogy there um then job starts having a conversation with god yeah so finally god shows up yeah. and speaks to job so god- of which before you get there, I want to point out two things. You can tell what God says. Mm. One thing God does not say is that God was the initiator of it. Right. And God 
never tells him why he did it, mm-hmm. why he let him do it. Mm-hmm. But what does God say? Where do you want me? Where because, were you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where were you when I created the world? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's... Which is a statement of sovereignty. Right. That That's solely what it's doing, is it's establishing God's authority here. Mm-hmm. Um, I am creator. You are the created. Yep. Um, and all of creation answers to me, right. including... The most scary thing in the world. The, the Leviathan. The Leviathan. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean. And then, then, what, ha- and then, then what happens? After they have this long conversation, God restores his family or gives him a new family. Gives him a new family. A new wealth. Of, of double the value. Of double the value. Um, wife's still around, though. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, it, you have to assume like she doesn't die. We don't get the narrative well, that not, she leaves. We're not told that she dies, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and full disclosure, the Book of Job is quite troubling for me. Yeah, I don't really like it. Um, what Rachel points out is that. The book of Job actually stands, and the message of the book of Job actually stands in direct contradiction to the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is 100% given over to the righteous are blessed and the unrighteous are cursed. Of which Job has none of that kind of teaching. Interesting. And she's right. I mean, there's no question that she's right about it. Um, There's no question that she's right about it. And what she's getting at is that this is what she says. In the Bible, wisdom is rarely presented as a single decision, belief, or rule but rather as a way or path that the sojourner must continually discern amid the twists and turns of life. Wisdom is a way of life, a journey of humility and faithfulness we take together one step at a time, which is very different than the way that I was taught to approach the Bible or wisdom literature in general, because wisdom literature are the short pithy statements that you can go and live your life according to. Right. They're like, they're like the rule book for you to follow. Right. The guidebook. They're not that at all. And honestly, if you were going to look to them to be a rule book or a guidebook in that way, um, the wisdom literature is kind of a big problem for you. And one of her great examples is in the way that wisdom literature is given over to lament. Mm. Um, Lament gives a human freedom Mm -hmm. in a sense um, to, to allow God to, Speak, to work in your vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, a, in a certain way. And the wisdom literature is littered with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's 
entirely what Ecclesiastes is. Mm, no, it's not lament. I would say that large portions of it is. He's lamenting over the fact that he no longer sees value in things, <laughs> right? Like, no, well, I don't know. It's a really cynical way of looking at Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I mean, Ecclesiastes is his claim is that, hey, you should follow what I'm saying in this book because right. I'm the wisest person who's ever lived and I've right. tried all these things. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's lament at all. Lament is like, I'm angry at God. Right. Lament. Um, this 100% negativity, which I don't think Ecclesiastes is given over to quite in that way. What? This is a conversation we can have out. It is. Air. All right, let me read this paragraph to you because I noted it. This is her talking about the book of Job. Mm -hmm. From this book, above all of the others in Scripture, we learn that the person in pain is a theologian of unique authority, wrote Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis in her marvelous book titled Getting Involved with God. The one who complains to God, pleads with God, rails at God, does not let God off the hook for a minute. She is at, is at last admitted to a mystery. She passes through a door that only pain will open and is thus qualified to speak of God in a way that others, whom we generally call more fortunate, cannot speak. Even more significantly, the book of Job challenges the prevailing wisdom Wisdom found elsewhere in scripture that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. As professor and author Timothy Beale put it, the book of Job is like a fault line running through the Bible. In it, the moral universe affirmed in texts like Deuteronomy, according to which righteousness equals blessed, well-being and disobedience equals cursed suffering, is shaken to its core. So the question that we're having here throughout Job and the wisdom literature is a question of theodicy, mm -hmm. the problem of evil. Yep. Why do good people suffer? This is what Rachel says. There is not a biblical view of theodicy. There are biblical views of theodicy. And the people who wrote and assembled scripture seemed perfectly fine with that unresolved tension. Wisdom, it seems, is situational. It isn't just about knowing what to say. It's about knowing when to say it. And it's not just about knowing what is true. It's about knowing when it's true. Do you agree? Largely, I would say yes. Although, what you say does really matter. <laughs> um... What do you mean? I don't I don't think she would disagree with you. Right. But I mean what I'm trying to say is like the way that you say things can be extremely detrimental. Even, oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Like For sure. Um so even if your meaning is something entirely different it, if it's taken the wrong way it could be horrible. So what you say does really matter. And yeah, the way that the Proverbs are worded do matter, I think, in, in some ways. Um, and like wisdom literature, the way that things are worded, I think it does really matter. Yeah, but she says I do agree. it isn't just about knowing what to say. Mm. Like, that's definitely mm. a piece of it. She wouldn't disagree with you at all in that. Okay. 
Yeah, she wouldn't disagree with you at all. No. I mean, I, I would agree then. Like, Yeah, so... One of the things that she brings up, which has definitely been true in my in my life and was actually really advantageous to like my deconstruction journey is this paragraph right here. She says, I'd always thought the more time I spent with the Bible, the more clarity I would receive. <laughs> yeah. We laugh about it now yeah. because we grew up thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> But as my nightstand grew cluttered with precarious stacks of books presenting four views on atonement, three views on hell, five views on evolution, and four views on homosexuality, it became apparent that even among people who believe the Bible to speak with authority, the Bible's message is not always plain. Yeah. The presence of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christian denominations make this point obvious. There's no question. I mean, yeah. and, and part of that is... The wisdom literature and the ambiguity and the ways that this unique section of books contradicts other sections of the scriptures right. or tells another perspective. If you really look at it that way, and I feel like most of our argument in this chapter is kind of like it, it's, it's a conversation against inerrancy is really what it boils down to. Um, and this is what she says. She says, ask a Catholic monk, an Orthodox priest, an evangelical pastor, and a Reformed rabbi how many books are in the Bible, and you'll get four different answers. <laughs> These various yeah. traditions sort their books in different ways, too, yeah. because Scripture consists of stories, poems, proverbs, letters, laws, genealogies, parables, and a host of other genres mm. that can be difficult to get categorize since they emerge from a culture so different from our own. Well, we may wish for a clear, perspicuous text. That's not what God gave us. Instead, God gave us a cacophony of voices and perspectives all in conversation with one another, representing the breadth and depth of the human experience and all its complexities and contradictions. And you know, there's kind of an element of beauty in that. Yeah. This is why she thinks it's beautiful. When God gave us the Bible, God did not give us internally consistent book of answers. God gave us an inspired library of diverse writings rooted in a variety of contexts that have stood the test of time precisely because together they avoid simplistic solutions to complex problems. It's almost as though God trusts us to approach them with wisdom, to use discernment as we read and interpret and to remain open to other points of view. Yeah. This is, I mean, that statement is clearly given over to, like, postmodernism. But, like... <laughs> Why is that bad? <laughs> and it's not bad. I, it's not bad. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. And I was, because I was saying that to say this, what I'm about to say is going to sound super postmodern, but it allows freedom in your own relationship and experience with God. Correct. Um, that's what the variety of voices in scripture, I think is trying to do. Um, I would agree with you. And I think 
part of the reason that it's trying to do that is because, you know, as we say, trauma is relative. If you've ever been through trauma, you know that not everybody handles it the same. Mm -hmm. A plethora of voices in wisdom literature and lament really help people figure out how to deal and process these things. And this is what I want to leave you with from Rachel. Often I hear from readers who left their churches because they had no songs for them to sing after the miscarriage, the shooting, the earthquake, the divorce, the diagnosis, the attack, the bankruptcy. That American tendency toward triumphalism of optimism rooted in success, money, and privilege will infect and sap of substance any faith community that has lost its capacity for holding space for those in grief. As therapists and caregivers explain, to hold space for someone is to simply sit with them in their pain without judgment or solutions and remain present and attentive no matter the outcome. The Psalms are, in a sense, God's way of holding space for us. They invite us to rejoice, wrestle, cry, complain, offer thanks, and shout obscenities before our Maker without self-consciousness and without fear. Life is full of sort of joys and sorrows. They don't resolve neatly in a major key. God knows that. The Bible knows that. Why don't we? It is telling and extraordinary that that in his most vulnerable moment, Jesus himself turned to the Psalms, hanging from a Roman cross between two thieves while his mother and loved ones watched in shock, he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry straight from Psalm 22. The God to whom these words were first spoken, speaking them back in human form. Three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead. But in that moment, when all hope was lost and the darkness overwhelmed, only poetry would do. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.